Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 9. We might even finish Genesis chapter 9 today. We'll have to see. We're going to leave it up to God, right? While you guys are turning to Genesis chapter 9, we're getting ready. I want to thank you for your patience with me. I was gone last week. And uh, we went to, in case you didn't hear, we went to Joshua Tree. We camping last week. And had a great time. And as is always the case with stories with the Smith family going on vacation, there's always an adventure to be had. And this adventure began almost right out of the gate. We got on the freeway, and we're on the 55. I mean, we haven't even moved anywhere. We've gone maybe five minutes, and there's a truck pulling up alongside me, honking its horn. And we're pulling our trailer, and I'm using the SUV. And I, you know, that's 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 a lot of stuff I got to concentrate on. You know, I want to make sure about lane changes and everything. So this guy pulls up in a truck next to me. He's honking his horn. And then there's a woman sitting in the passenger seat. And she's motioning to the back of our trailer. And she's mouthing words. And I can't make out all of what she's saying. But I do see her say what I think is the word bike. And to give you a little bit of an illustration, we've got on the back bumper this bike hitch. And it's got three bikes on it. And and so I'm going, oh, great. There's probably one of the straps came loose and the bike's like dangling or something. (laughs) So we pull off the freeway. We're not even on the 55 yet. And we pull off the freeway and I pull into like a business area. And I get out and I go to the back of the trailer. And where there used to be three bikes, there's two. (laughs) We're missing a bike. Somewhere on that short drive on the freeway, the end most bike decided to take a hike. And uh, so now I'm, you know, now there's a dilemma because only two of the three girls are going to have bikes. And the littlest girl, um, the littlest girl ends up having to suffer because she's missing a bike. So it it was kind of sad. It was kind of sad. We had just started out, you know, we got this unexpected setback. And, and the youngest one ends up suffering for it. Don't know how it happened. You know, the other two were still strapped in fine. And the straps on this one, you know, maybe we hit a bump or a bounce or something. There it went. So, lost So, Genesis chapter 9, then. A little bit of review where we were last week. Last week, we, we looked at uh, the covenants, or at least it, we served, it served as an introduction. I'm sorry, that wasn't last week. It was the week before served as an introduction to the covenants. And one of the things that we saw in that passage that we looked at, which was verses 8 through 17, is that God gave a sign of the covenant there, covenant with Moses and and mankind. And he ends up giving the sign of the rainbow. We talked about that a little bit. But the rainbow is basically to serve as an illustration that when we see it in the sky, we don't have to worry that the rain that's coming is going to inundate us, right? That uh, it's God's promise that has continued for millennia that uh, I'm not going to destroy the earth again entirely by flood. You know, I'm not going to flood the earth. When the, when I send you rains, look at it as a blessing, not as a potential curse or a potential disaster about to befall you. Relax in the rain. Let me let me bring you rain. All right, and you be happy and uh, satisfied with it. One of the things that we didn't emphasize too much, but there in verse 8, I want to point something out today. In verse 8, it says that God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him. 
So if we had earlier in the story God speaking to Noah, here the sons are included. So the sons have heard from God as of verse 8. And that's pretty cool. Perhaps that could be some sort of indication in our relationship with God. You know, God has no grandchildren. My kids don't get to go to heaven because I'm a Christian. They need a personal relationship with the Savior, just as I do, okay? But there is something about coming from a family that's devoted to God that bears blessings for those children. And in this situation, God speaks to Noah, and then as time goes on, God speaks to Noah, and the same blessing is extended to the children. As we're wrapping up this story of the flood account and Noah and the flood and the ark and and all that, two things I want to mention, both in in Peter, uh, you've got 2 Peter and 1 Peter, Peter mentions the flood story in both of those. He mentions the flood story in 1 Peter, and he talks about it typologically. He talks about the flood story as being similar to baptism. And the passage there is 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21. And it says there basically, In the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Okay, obviously we're talking about Noah and the flood story. Saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So Peter uses the flood story as a type and saying that it's baptism, basically saying that passing from death to life. So that baptizing that we go through, we go down in death, the old man is crucified in him, that the body of sin might be done away with and we're raised again, imperishable in a new life. It's a symbolic gesture or symbolic act that we go through that should be indicating a spiritual reality that's going on in our lives. So as we go to be baptized, we're surrendering, we're identifying with Christ, we're going down and and we're dead to the old self and we're rising up in, in a newness of life. In 2 Peter, he uses the flood account in Noah And there he ends up using it as an illustration that the God of the Bible, the one true God, is a God that judges sin. He's very patient, but do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You know, whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. God judges sin. And if it's not coming today, it's coming tomorrow or the next day, all right? Rest assured, that's on an individual level, that's on a, a national level, that's on a worldwide level. All right, God does judge sin. Moving on from there, then, we're up to Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. 18 through 29, like I said, is pretty much going to round out the rest of this chapter for us. And uh, somebody mind reading a couple verses here. How about verses 18 and 19? The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jopheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Excellent, thank you. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Was Canaan on the ark? No. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. And we know from Genesis, and we also know from Peter making reference to Genesis, that there were only eight people that were on the ark. There was Noah and his wife, three sons and three wives. So you've got your eight people right there. So Canaan was not on the ark at the time of the flood. But here we have a mention or a reference to now a ninth person, Canaan. It's going to end up being that this is uh, this is the beginning of that illustration where God said, be fruitful and multiply. They're doing it. Okay? <laughs> and if you're wondering how much time has passed, we don't know. We're going to find out by the end of the chapter that Noah dies at the end of the chapter at 950 years. So you've got 350 years from the time of the flood, you know, for population to begin to increase. All right? So somewhere between year 601 and 950 in Noah's life, You're going to have, you know, your kids are having kids, so you're going to be having lots of grandkids. Canaan is not actually the firstborn of Ham. He's actually the youngest son of Ham, at least in the birth order uh, that we'll see in a little bit. 
So we've got Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What's their birth order? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It sounds like it should be Shem is the oldest, Ham is the second, and Japheth is the third born, right? But if you look at verse 24, somebody look at verse 24 and see what it says there. His youngest. His youngest son. Speaking of whom? Ham. Ham. So there we have, according to verse 24, that Ham is the youngest son. So now we're tipped off that Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that is not their birth order. So for some reason, the order is a little bit different. The order is a little bit changed. So that makes us wonder then, is Shem the oldest or is Japheth the oldest? Regarding Shem and Japheth as to who's the oldest, it's not known. It's not known for sure. Okay, There is a pretty strong argument that Shem is the oldest, a secondary argument that Japheth may be older than Shem. So it's not known for sure, but it looks like Ham is the youngest. Okay, Moving on from there... Verse 19, these were the three sons of Noah, and from these, the whole earth. Oh, sounds like floodwaters in there. <laughs> from these, the whole earth was populated. Does that sound like language that would describe a local flood? And you know I've hit this every time I've come across a phrase where it seems to defer one side or the other. Is this, is this speaking to a local flood or is this speaking to a worldwide flood? When you come across that the whole earth was populated from these people, does that sound like it was a global situation? Yeah, it sure does. It doesn't sound like that's the appropriate phrase that you would use to describe a local flood. So from these, the whole earth was populated. Verse 20, And Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. Verse 21, then he, speaking of Noah, then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. All right, drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his, in his tent. So drinking of wine, this is probably an appropriate place to talk about that. Drinking of wine, appropriate or not appropriate? Ooh, nobody wants to answer. <laughs> is this a loaded question? Is this a trick? <laughs> Appropriate. Appropriate. You don't want to do it around ham, though. You don't want to do it around <laughs> That's a good caveat. All right, that's fine. <laughs> the position of the Bible is that there isn't anything wrong with just drinking of wine. Where's the problem? Where does the problem lie? In drunkenness, in drinking too much wine. And isn't that the case? Sometimes there is the occasion where something isn't wrong, but you indulge in it to excess, and then it's inappropriate. Then it's wrong. Okay. Some of the passages that would be appropriate in talking about the drinking of wine or whatnot. Proverbs 23, Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35 says this, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Okay, I don't want woe in my life. I don't want sorrow in my life. Who has contentions? I'd prefer not to have contentions in my life. Who has complaints? I'd prefer not to have complaints. Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. And then an admonition. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent. I don't want to be bit like a serpent, <laughs> okay? And stings like a viper. I don't want a sting like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? <laughs> So it sounds like the person that's being described here, even in the end, they are ex exercising poor judgment in deciding, oh, when can I recover enough to crawl back to the bar and get another drink? Um, yeah. 
How about Hosea 4.11? Wine, drinking of wine to excess, and it ends up saying this. Harlotry. Harlotry? What does that have to do with wine? Harlotry, wine and new wine, enslave the heart. So that the power of wine over our hearts and the ability of engaging in too much wine, enslaving our heart to be put in the same group as harlotry. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, and strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. But drinking of wine by itself is not a big deal. Okay? Drinking of wine is not the problem. It's drinking too much. It's getting drunk. Yeah, Jesus changed water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Yeah, his first miracle. Uh, Luke 7, 34, Jesus describing himself through the eyes of the others around, right? And he describes himself as the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. So apparently his reputation that he was aware of in their eyes was that he was a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then you have him on the cross. He's offered wine to drink. Initially, he refuses. And then right before he says it is finished, he actually accepts a drink from the sour vinegar wine that he, uh, that's given up to him. Sometimes I run across the discussion, well, the wine back then was different than the wine now. You know, some people say, well, you know, the wine back then was really weak. And, uh, you know, now it's a lot stronger. Okay, here's what I run across when I'm reading through this and trying to figure out whether or not that's the case. There's a difference between fermentation and distillation, all right? When it comes to fermentation, wine is made by fermentation today not too different from what it was made, how it was made back in the day, all right? Back in Jesus' day or back in Noah's day. It's still about fermentation. It's about the grape being fermented. So you can have strong wine back then just as you can have strong wine now. There was in the Passover services, from what I understand, uh, the wine was actually watered down a little bit for those services. I think it was four parts water to one part wine for the service, if I understood what I read correctly. Um, but I hadn't run across that before this week in preparing for this study. But distillation? Distillation is something altogether different. That came after this. That came after what we would read about in the Bible. And distillation would provide you the opportunity to make much stronger drinks. Okay? Your whiskeys or your bourbons or whatever. I, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to give you a whole list. Uh, but basically, distillation versus fermentation. In Psalm chapter 104, we look at and see that it sounds like wine, or at least the ability to make wine is a blessing from God. It says in verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants to, for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul even encourages Timothy. He says, for your stomach's sake and for your many ailments, take a little wine instead of water. All right, so if you were to stand on the ground that you should never drink wine, you're going to have a hard time, I think, from the Bible being able to hold that position. All right. With that being said, I should probably tell you where I come from. I don't drink wine. Uh, not because I feel like I'm being holy or anything like that. Uh, for my personal situation, my personal experience, I have situations in my family history. So for me personally, I make a choice not to drink because genetically I understand that there's probably an inclination that might be there for me that maybe somebody else doesn't have. So I make a choice consciously to not drink wine because I'm concerned that I don't want to pass the <coughs> sins of my fathers onto my life and into my kids' lives, if you know what I mean. I don't want mm -hmm. to find out that I'm easily addicted to wine when it's too late. All right, so that's the reason. 1 Corinthians 6.12, that's kind of a verse for me in this area. It says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. And really, that should be for all of us for when it comes to wine. 
you have the right to drink wine, but don't let it master you. Don't let it master you. Okay? And then finally, Ephesians 5.18. We can't pass this passage up when talking about wine. Where Paul ends up encouraging the church in Ephesus, he says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Almost as if he's saying, Don't be filled with wine, but be drunk in the Spirit. Almost as if he's saying it that way. And that's great. We need to have the Spirit (laughs) flowing through our lives and affecting the way that we behave and affecting the way that we think and speak and see the world. Uh, That's the kind of drunkenness. Drunk in the Spirit would be more appropriate than being drunk by the Spirit's. All right. <laughs> uncovered, the word uncovered. So so we look at this verse and we go, then he drank wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his sin. We don't know why he became uncovered. Victor P. Hamilton, a commentator, ends up saying, maybe the biblical writer is simply saying that too much wine reduces a normally rational being to a buffoon. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, there are several conjectures and speculation as to why he didn't have any clothes on, why Noah didn't have any clothes on in his tent. And they are just that. They're conjectures and speculations. We don't know from the text for sure why. Let me talk one moment about the word tent here, where it says here at the end of this verse, then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. As I mentioned, we went camping at Joshua Tree, and part of that involved sleeping in a tent. And I enjoy that. And we also took the trailer. As you heard in the story, you're like, why did they sleep in a tent if they took a trailer? Well, because the trailer's not quite big enough for the five of us. So two of us, my youngest daughter and I, we went out and slept in a tent. But anyway, as we're sleeping in the tent in Joshua Tree, the winds come up. And they can get pretty windy. All right. So I know that going into it. So when we went out there, I I got some nails that were like this long. And I really anchored that thing down. But even so, as I'm sleeping in the tent and the wind comes up in the night, it blows the tent right on top of me. You know, it's just like, get off of me. Because <laughs> the wind's just blowing it. And it just reminded me, it just reinforced the idea as we're out there, that, that a tent is not a permanent shelter. All right? You, you would recognize that a tent is just a temporary place to dwell. Right? You put up a tent with the idea that you're probably going to end up taking it down and moving along eventually. You know? For us, it's a week. For somebody else, it might be shorter or longer. In the tents nowadays, I mean, they're very temporary. We had somebody show up in a campsite next to us. They spent one night. They opened the hood of their, or the trunk of their car, and they get out two tents, and they just kind of went, and there's the tent. You know, they've got their temporary structure. It's like that. And then in the morning, you know, they folded it up and stuck it in the back of the car, and they were on their way. They're just temporary structures. One of the things that's neat about considering that is that Noah's living in a tent. And as a temporary structure, that suggests to you that he's probably not going to stay in that place for a long time. Otherwise, you would think he would build a house. He's staying in a tent. So in a way, Noah is kind of like a stranger or a sojourner, a wanderer in a sense. In 1 Chronicles 29, 15, it says, For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. This living in a tent thing reminds us that in this life, there's a spiritual application and this is it. We're only here for a short while. We're just living in this life as passers-by, as sojourners or wanderers. Some of the versions will even say as aliens. <laughs> All right, Sojourners or wanderers. Peter in 2 Peter 1, 12-15 ends up talking about, he, he describes his body as a tent. That it's a temporary structure. That we're only in this for a little while. We're, we're just passing through. This is, this is not our permanent home. And he describes his body as a tent when he says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, speaking of his body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off this tent, the physical body, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. 
Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Paul speaks similarly of his body. He describes his body as a tent. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, basically 1 through 7, he says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. In verse 4, For we who are in this tent groan, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So both Paul and Peter talking about our life and our life in this short span of time that we're here on this earth, it's like we're living in a tent. We're just passing through. We're just visiting this planet, okay? The author of Hebrews carries this just a step further and kind of as Paul ended up saying we walk by faith, not by sight, at the end of that passage in Second Corinthians, Hebrews eleven, thirteen through sixteen says this. And this, by the way, comes right after that hall of faith. All right, all those great people of faith. All right, and then how is it followed up? It says this. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. Kind of like that first passage we read, just passing through. Verse 14, people who say such things show that they are looking for a long country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We're just sojourners in this life. We're just wanderers. Okay. And what we live in, in this life, it's like a tent. It's a temporary shelter. It's a temporary structure. I live in a great country, one of the best countries in the world. But you know what? I'm longing for a better country. I'm longing to be in that country that God has prepared. All right. When I am a citizen of heaven, when I am a citizen of that place, it's going to make this whole place look like, mm, you know, <laughs> right? It's going to pale by comparison. And then what, what does it say here at the end of that verse? Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A city is much more permanent than a tent. God is preparing for us a permanent habitation. We're just visiting this planet, and this life is a short, fleeting thing. When we get to heaven, there's a permanency about it that's going to be unlike what we're used to here on this earth. Genesis 9.22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the wickedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Esther, what have you got for us? When it talks about the, his father's nakedness, in Leviticus 18 it says, The nakedness of your father, that is, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not expose. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not expose. It is your father's nakedness. So I'm not so sure it was him unclothed. As I was mentioning earlier, there are lots of proposals as to what the saw his father's nakedness could mm -hmm. consist of. Okay, One of the proposals Esther just brought up, Leviticus 18, there is that possibility that the sin is, while Noah is inebriated, that Ham is having relations with his mother, perhaps uncovering her nakedness. That's one of the proposals. There's another proposal that Ham is having relations with his dad in the form of sodomy. There was another proposal I read that it was Ham castrating his dad. Mm, okay. <laughs> well, All right. Well, we can take it at face value. If you just read it for what is it? He walks in on his dad. This is save it if you just take it and sees his dad naked. Right. And then he, and then from that sin, he's his his son is cursed. 
So I think there's something to be more implied there. Mm-hmm. That's Good. not my personal opinion. Right. So taking it at face value, Victor P. Hamilton says this, we are on much safer ground in limiting Ham's transgression simply to observing the exposure of the genitalia and failing to cover his naked father. Otherwise, the other two brothers' act of covering their father's nakedness becomes incomprehensible. So all those other suggestions, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe not, until you get to the part where Sham and Japheth walk backward and they cover their dad with the cloak. That doesn't take away castration, <laughs> okay? That doesn't take away sodomy. So then you're left with, well, wait a minute. As the story progresses, doesn't dad come down pretty hard on his son if that was actually just viewing, if it was just an observation thing, right? And so we look at it in verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Javeth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Verse 24, So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, first words ever recorded out of Noah's mouth, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, as shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Those are the first words recorded to Noah. The preacher of righteousness. Oh, it sounds like he's coming down pretty hard for just being viewed. Okay? So what's involved here? It may be viewed by accident. And viewed by accident. It could be a viewed by accident type of thing. And by Noah waking up, he realized what his son had done to him. Yeah. How does Noah know when he wakes up that something happened? All right? Again, there's, there's lots of different proposals. But the one that I found personally most convincing, and it doesn't have to be the right one, it may or may not be, is that... Shem and Japheth, when they walk in and they lay the robe over their father, when the father wakes up, why do I have a robe on me? And why am I naked under the robe? Oh, wait. (laughs) Oh, wait. Okay. All right. So maybe I fell asleep. Oh, uh, you know, that maybe the robe is the tip off that something had occurred and that in investigating with his sons, maybe he found out the story as to Ham observing, but not just observing, going out and making fun of it or saying something about it to Shem and Japheth, okay? Could it be, though, that just viewing and then making fun of Dad would render such a harsh decision? We, in our Western modern mentality, don't understand shaming a parent as being such a big deal, right? We see that often in this building where we work. I've seen it where people in the audience area are mistreating their parents verbally, and it gets me mad, but you know what? I i got to realize, I'm not abiding by these rules, <laughs> all right, when I'm treating people out there, you know, because if I was, I'd be like, mm. okay. <laughs> and you see it, I've seen it with inmates, with people that are in custody and the way that they talk to their parents, even while they're in custody, making demands of their parents and telling their parents what to do and telling them that they have to take care of this, have to take care of that and, you know, put more money on my books. Really? You're in jail because of bad decisions you made, you know? Uh, sorry, getting getting a little fired up right now. <laughs> but shaming a parent, dishonoring a parent, was a big deal here at this time. In fact, John Hartley, one of the commentators, says, In antiquity, shaming a parent was a serious offense, as evidenced by the death penalty for striking or cursing a parent. And to find those verses, Exodus twenty-one fifteen, it says, And he who strikes his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Chapter 21, verse 17 says, He who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. Could you imagine if those were, 
instituted nowadays. If you were put to death for cursing your parents, if you were put to death for hitting your parents, oh, we wouldn't have as much work. We wouldn't have as much work. That's a good way to put it. Isn't that the truth? So cursing your father or mother, put to death. Striking your mother or father, put to death. In fact, the fifth commandment of the Big Ten that God says these are the Big Ten. The fifth one says, honor your father and your mother. And then Paul, when he talks about that in Ephesians, adds the word obey. So it was up to children to obey, to honor their parents, not to shame them. To shame them, to hit them is a, is a form of disgracing your parents. To, to curse them is a form of shaming them. It's a, it's a capital offense. That was something you died for back then. Okay? So when Ham sees his father and makes fun of him and shames him in front of his brothers, that's a capital offense. You're shaming your father. It doesn't need to be any more than that. You don't have to sodomize your dad to deserve the death penalty. You just can shame your dad to deserve the death penalty under these guidelines. Yes? Um, just to mention, Canaan is the, would be the son of Ham? Good. Okay. Yes. Right. So you notice the curse is not on Ham. Okay. The curse is on His Canaan. Offspring. In fact, if you look at, if you find out, you find out that Ham has several sons and Canaan is the youngest as we look forward in the next chapter. Why would Noah ask God to curse the youngest son of Ham when Ham is the one that deserves it, right? Do you remember two weeks ago we looked at Lex Talionis? Lex Talionis was where the punishment would be fitting for the crime. In this situation, what was the crime? Ham was destroying the relationship with dad in the eyes of his brother. Ham's the youngest son. The youngest son and dad, that relationship's being destroyed by Ham's behavior. Noah is calling for a lex talionis between Ham and his youngest son. Mm -hmm. He's saying, God, what Ham has done for me destroyed this relationship that I have with my youngest son due to him, through his son. You know, that sounds pretty extreme. Mm -hmm. That sounds pretty bad. But you know what? We're not too far from that when we as parents go... Someday I hope you have a kid just like you. So you know what it's like, right? Someday you'll have a kid just like you. And you're going to remember back to this day and how, how you've been treating me, that kind of thing. Yeah, we're not too far off from that. So when we look at it and we go, oh, that's pretty severe. Really, when you think about it, we participate in similar behavior, not too different. So Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, cursed be Canaan. So he's got a curse for Canaan. And then he ends up having a blessing. Who's the blessing for? If the curse was not for Ham, but was for Ham's son Canaan, who was the blessing for? You would think the blessing would be for Shem, but it's not. It's blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. So it's kind of like Ham should have been the one to get cursed, but instead it's Canaan. Shem should have been the one to get blessed, but it's the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So (coughs) Noah is calling for blessings upon his two sons that showed him honor, that came in and covered him up, that tried to do something about the shameful situation. Now Noah shouldn't have got drunk. He shouldn't have got drunk and stripped his clothes off and been in that situation. But Ham also shouldn't have done that. Is God blessing or is God honoring Noah's curse? Well, you know what's interesting is you look later on, the descendants of Shem end up being the Israelites, and the descendants of Canaan end up being the Canaanites. And eventually, the Israelites conquer the Canaanites. Historically, it actually comes to pass. But shy of that, 
God doesn't vocally say in the passage, I condone what you're saying. I condone your behavior. We don't have that. All right. And then verses 28 and 29 round out the chapter. Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. So two-thirds of Noah's life was spent up to and through the flood. But he still had a third of his life left after the flood. So the flood part mm-hmm. of his life, that big story with the ark, that happened two-thirds of the way through. Think how long you're expecting you might live. And maybe you'll find that you're somewhere close to the two-thirds mark. God did his best in Noah's life two-thirds of the way through. Maybe God's got something that's the best he's going to do in your life at this age when you might feel, oh, I'm two-thirds done. I'm, I'm, I'm almost checking out. I'm already looking at the end of the tunnel. I'm already looking at retirement. I'm already looking at taking it easy. Maybe God would be saying, this is when you get fired up because this is when I'm going to need you. You're going to be instrumental in what I want to do. And so don't discount God's ability to do something great in your life because of your age. Perhaps this is the opening that God's looking for in your life to say, I'm going to do great things and I need you to be my tool, my instrument. All right, let's close in prayer. I I started this study off by talking about the story of my daughter and the bike. (laughs) And how... What happened? How we were... bike? (laughs) This is where you get to know the rest of it. Okay. So obviously, what, that, what was that? That was a situation we had just started out on this new adventure. And there was an unexpected setback, and our youngest ended up suffering. That's similar to the story we just read about, where the, the flood story is done. They're just starting out on this new adventure. And now this episode is an unexpected setback, and the youngest ends up suffering. Canaan ends up suffering for it. Hmm. There's some similarities there. That's why I used that yeah, illustration to open the story. But the differences are... I bought my daughter a new bike on vacation. She got a new bike. (laughs) This story doesn't end that way. This story is a little bit different. So obviously I had to stop the illustration and (laughs) wait till the end of the study to be able to tell you how the story happened with my daughter. But yeah, they're just starting out. Unexpected setback, and the youngest one ends up suffering. All right, let's close and pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the riches and the depth that we could just keep digging and digging. We thank you, Lord, that you bless us as we go. We thank you, Lord, that you say, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. We thank you, God, that mm, you are good. We thank you that we're not coming and tasting, finding that there's bitterness or sourness. And Lord, but we are getting parts where it's puzzling, it's confusing, uh, and it doesn't make much sense to us. But Lord, we trust you, and we trust as we live and mature that we will get answers to these questions that we have. Nobody's going to figure it out completely all the way as they go the first time through. We pray that you would help us as we go through your word repeatedly, Lord, that things that used to be troubling would make more sense as time goes on. We trust you, Lord, with our lives. We trust you, Lord, with our logic, and we understand that your ways are not our ways. And this story that happens here, it's got some weird stuff in it. But, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to find out what it says, and we thank you for the opportunity in the future to find out what it's worth and what what it means to, to us as we spiritually mature. We thank you, Lord, for helping us through this study of the book of Genesis. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good study, Jeff. You guys have a great week.